Nike, and Apple spend billions of dollars each year on advertisements. Advertisements that don't even mention their product. Instead, the bulk of their advertising dollars are spent associating their product's symbol with very powerful meaning and associations in our culture. Whether that's greatness, innovation, overcoming adversity, progression, they connect their symbol to these ideals through story. And they do this so that they would bring customers who desire and want to relate to these aspirations. The result is a couple of the most successful businesses in the world. What these companies realize is that symbol, charged with meaning, reach deeper than reason. Symbols dive straight into the unconscious decision-driving area of our brains. And this is why you'll often see these companies and many others like it out there spending billions of dollars to associate these ideals with their symbol. And they do that rather than telling you that their product is good or better than this one over here. The power of symbol is not lost upon God. He designed us to relate powerfully to symbols charged with meaning and purpose. And it's why in our text here this morning that he gives his disciples a very powerful and continual symbol to bolster them in their faith. He gives them the Lord's Supper that we are about to observe here this morning. And while companies will use symbols to draw business to themselves, Jesus uses it to draw us into deeper relationship and fellowship with him. As we learn about the giving of the Lord's Supper in our text here this morning, my hope and desire is that we will grow. We will grow in our appreciation of what God has done for us in this meal and through it grow closer to Jesus. So this brings us back to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 verses 12 through 26, if you would turn there in your Bibles. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him wherever he enters Tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him, one by one, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, 
but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As we come back to our text here this morning in Mark, we find the disciples looking for a place to celebrate the Passover. And on this day, once a year, the Israelites will remember the mighty acts of God that he did for Israel in bringing them out of Egypt. A crucial part of this celebration was the sacrifice of a lamb. For it was the blood of a lamb on their doorposts that saved them from God's wrath that fateful night when the firstborns of Egypt were slain. So as the disciples look for a place to celebrate this important meal, they ask Jesus, where do you want us to, to celebrate? Where should we go? Now it was customary for the Jews to celebrate this Passover meal within the walls of Jerusalem. That's what was custom. That's why so many flocked to Jerusalem during this week. And so they say, Jesus, where in Jerusalem should we go for this meal? And in response, Jesus gives them a, a somewhat cryptic answer here as we look at what he says, right? He says, you two, you two disciples, we don't know which ones, go into the city. And, and when you go, you'll find a man carrying a, a jar of water. That's a bit odd, but it would have been odd for a man carrying a jar of water. For the women were the ones that often carried the water in this society. So they're to look for this man carrying a jar of water, which would have been abnormal, and then, and then they're supposed to follow him. They're, they're supposed to go after him and watch where he goes and follow him. And then whatever home he enters, they're to, to go into that home with him and then speak with the owner. And when they talk with the owner, they're supposed to say, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And in response, the owner of the house will show them a, a large room upstairs, furnished and ready to go. It's already prepared. And there, they can bring the food. They can make preparations for this very, very important meal that Jesus will have with his disciples. So as we, as we read these instructions, I, I think maybe there are a couple questions that come to our mind. And the first is, did did Jesus like make these plans in advance without telling us? Is this some kind of divine foreknowledge? And the truth is, we, we really don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus knows exactly where he wants to celebrate this meal. But then we have a second question, and that is, why does Jesus then give such cryptic instructions to his disciples? Why does he tell them in such an odd way here? Maybe there was you know, more of a straightforward way of telling his disciples where to go. And what we don't know for certain, I think it may have something to do with what we read right before this account. If you remember from last week, 
Judas is seeking to betray Jesus at an opportune moment. He's looking for a good opportunity each and every second now. But in order to delay that betrayal, I think Jesus here takes time to carefully instruct two of his disciples in a cryptic way so that Judas can't betray him yet. He gives them these instructions where to go. Because Jesus has every intention of celebrating this meal with his disciples before he goes to his death. This meal is important, and Jesus is going to make sure nothing gets in the way of that. So the disciples go at his word, and they find everything just as he said. And they most likely prepare everything, and then they go back and join the rest of the crew. Now the Jews would celebrate the Passover in the evening. So as evening comes, we read that Jesus and the 12 disciples then make their way back to this large furnished room where they will celebrate Passover together. And contrary to the, the, the famous Last Supper painting that many of you are familiar with where, you know, they're sitting on chairs around this table, uh, they're most likely sitting on the floor. And, and they're most likely in a reclined and relaxed position around the table as this is how the Jews would celebrate these types of meals. It's also possible that at this meal, it was more than just the 12 disciples. It was a very large room, and it would have been normal to invite families to this important celebration. So whether part of Jesus' family were there or the disciples, we don't know. There may have been. But the room is thought to have hold around 30 to 40 people, a large room indeed. So here they are, the 12 disciples, maybe others with them, we don't know. But while they're eating this celebratory meal, signifying their deliverance from Egypt, Jesus, seemingly out of nowhere, drops a bomb on everyone present. And he tells them, one of you, one of you here in this room with me is going to betray me. Now, we know that Jesus is going to be betrayed. We were told that already. But this is the first time the disciples are hearing it. And you can immediately feel the change in the atmosphere. Someone in that room with Jesus is going to betray him. And so how do the disciples react to such horrific news? We're told they become distressed. They become sorrowful. And they begin to ask Jesus one by one, is it I? Am I going to be the one that betrays you? I find it interesting that they, they don't start accusing each other or interrogating one another right on the spot. Instead, they ask, is it me? Could it be me? And whether this is false humility or not, we don't know. For Judas, it certainly was. But at a minimum, they acknowledge that it could be me. They don't know what to make of Jesus' word. It's also interesting that they don't immediately identify Judas as the betrayer. From all looks and appearances, all the disciples had an equal chance of doing this. And so they reflect on themselves first. So in response to the disciples' questions, one by one, Jesus tells them, it is one of the twelve. It is the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. Now, if there were more than just the disciples in the room, 
this would have definitely narrowed it down to them. But if it was only the 12, then Jesus is dramatically reinforcing his point. The betrayer is one in very close relationship to Jesus. And it's really hard, I think, for us to to capture the significance of the kind of betrayal in our context here, where meals are not nearly as important for us as it was for them. But as one commentator helpfully puts, meals were rituals of social status in the Mediterranean world. And to share fellowship with someone indicated friendship and social acceptance. To betray a friend after eating with him was and still is regarded as the worst kind of treachery in the Middle East. By taking that, which is meant to bring friendship and intimacy, and then twisting it for evil only heightened the intensity of the evil. And here we find that this kind of evil treachery is going to happen with one who is in very close relationship to Jesus. Now, as terrible as this is, as awful as this is, Jesus tells us something surprising here. He says, For the Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. So as bad as this is, Jesus tells us it is necessary because it has been written that this must happen. In other words, this has all been planned. My betrayal must happen and occur just as it was written about me. And we kind of wonder, well, where was this written? Where was it written that these things must happen, that Jesus must go? And maybe he's thinking of a couple different passages here. Perhaps Psalm 41.9, which tells us, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. And Jesus may be referencing this Davidic psalm here, Psalm 141.9, or Isaiah 53, which speaks of the necessity of Jesus having to die in our place. And so he might be referring to one or two of these. We don't know. But whatever passage Jesus was thinking of here, it's clear that as awful as this betrayal is, it's necessary. But just because it's necessary doesn't let the person who did this betrayal off the hook. In fact, Jesus continues saying here, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, for it would have been better if he was not born at all. These are some incredibly strong words from Jesus here. And he highlights in it the personal responsibility of Judas and the guilt that he would have to bear. In other words, you can live a life of such treachery and evil that would be better if the world never knew you at all. And so from Jesus here in these words to Judas and to his disciples, we learn to hold then the tension of God's sovereignty firmly with the responsibility of humans for their actions. For even though God can and does use the sins of man to bring himself glory and honor, it doesn't excuse the sins that man commits. God will judge sin. And apart from Christ, this is a terrifying thing to behold. Better to not have been born at all is what Jesus tells us. So with such betrayal at hand, you can imagine how the rest of that meal might have gone. It was very tenuous, very strained. But it's in light of all of these things that are occurring that Jesus gives the first 
what we know as the Lord's Supper. It's at this point that Jesus takes bread and after giving blessing over it, breaks it. And while giving it to the disciples, he says to them, take it. This is my body. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to him, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I think sometimes we're tempted to glaze right over this passage. Sometimes we're tempted not to give these words any real consideration. And we assume the symbolic meaning without fully appreciating what Jesus is saying here. And while it's impossible, I think, to cover every aspect of this meal and what it symbolizes, I do want us to slow down here this morning and to contemplate four things that the Lord's Supper highlights here in Mark. The first thing that is highlighted by Mark is the atoning work of Jesus and the Lord's Supper. Jesus and the Lord's Supper points to the bread. He points to the wine. And he says, this, this is me. And sometimes we forget this, but what meal are they celebrating at this point? They're celebrating the Passover meal. That's what is normally talked about here in this moment. This meal is originally supposed to be about Passover, but Jesus says here, not anymore. Now, it's about me. The imagery of bread being torn apart, the cup being poured out, symbolize the coming death of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus would die in our place, and he meant to connect his coming death to what took place at Passover. As Mark already mentioned earlier in verse 12, it was customary to sacrifice a lamb at Passover. They would sacrifice a lamb in remembrance that it was the blood of the lamb on the doorposts that saved them from God's wrath. It was the blood of the lamb on their doorposts that saved their firstborn sons. But here Jesus is telling us that the sacrifice of the lamb ultimately pointed to himself as the one who would bring about final deliverance, total deliverance. And we recognize this because Hebrews 10.4 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away the sins of man. So the slaying of the lamb pointed towards Jesus, the ultimate lamb in the Passover who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus would become this perfect lamb in our place and he would fit the requirements as it were required of the lamb. He would be mature in age, unblemished and without spot. He would have none of his bones broken, something that the authors are careful to record. And in this, Jesus is the perfect lamb of God who is sacrificed on our behalf. It'd be through his life, through his blood that is poured out on the cross that we would be saved. So instead of the Passover event, pointing back to Israel's deliverance from Egypt, Jesus now says it points to himself and the deliverance that he would bring through his atoning work on the cross. Through the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, we are not saved from slavery to Egypt, but in a greater way from our slavery to sin and death, from the wrath of God that we even sang about here this morning. And as First Peter tells us, we boast 
that we are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished lamb, spotless. So in the Lord's Supper, we clearly see Jesus' atoning work for us. But just as Israel had to apply the blood of the lamb to their doorposts, so we have to apply Christ's atoning work to ourselves. And we do this through faith in the finished work of Christ. Through faith in his body torn for us and his blood shed for us. And for those who haven't trusted in Christ's saving work and applied his atoning work to yourself, know that Jesus calls all of us to trust him, to believe that Jesus is your lamb, the one who has taken your place for your sins. And for those of us who have applied Christ's blood already to our lives and have found this salvation, we rejoice. And we give thanks each and every Sunday that we see this visual reminder in the Lord's Supper. For we see the gospel proclaimed. And the gospel isn't just the ABC to the Christian life. It is the A to Z. And it's something we will never, ever, ever get over until we see Christ again. So in the Lord's Supper here, we first see the atoning work of Jesus, and we rejoice greatly. But second, we also see the satisfying power of Jesus. Normally, before dis- dispersing the, the bread, the Jews would say, Praise the Lord, our God, King of the universe, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. But here we find Jesus saying, I give you bread. I am the bread. Be satisfied in me. And as we've been going through Mark, we've seen bread mentioned so many different times in this account. And it's not by accident. We first see bread mentioned prominently in chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 Jews. Jesus fed them all in chapter 6. And what do we read afterwards? They were satisfied completely. And there were 12 baskets left over. But then we're told something interesting near the end of the chapter. Verse 52, the disciples don't understand about the bread. They don't get it because their hearts were hardened. We see bread mentioned again in chapter 8 in the feeding of the 4,000, except this time it's Gentiles that are fed. And there are seven baskets left over. And then guess what happens again right afterwards? The disciples, they don't get it. They're grumbling and complaining that they don't have bread, even though the one who provided it is right next to them. So Jesus warns them against unbelief and reminds them how he satisfied both crowds with more than enough left over. And then we come here in the Lord's Supper, and Jesus breaks bread, and he gives it to them, And he says, I am the bread. I'm the one who sustains and satisfies, both Jew and Gentile. I'm the one that fills you completely. And in the Lord's Supper, Christ is reminding us of what he does for us. Not only in satisfying the wrath of God, but the endless void that exists in each of our hearts. But like the disciples, our hearts are often hardened, and we often forget. We forget that Jesus satisfies, 
We forget after the feeding of the 5,000. We forget after the feeding of the 4,000. And so we come to the Lord's table and we remember that he satisfies us and nothing else. This is a reminder that we desperately need for we are so often like the disciples and we go to other things and wonder where our satisfaction will come from when Jesus is right there. So in the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of his atoning work in that he satisfies us completely through his life and his death on our behalf. But we also remember the new covenant in his blood. Mark tells us here that after they drank from the cup, Jesus tells them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is my blood. Blood was sometimes used to make or seal a covenant with another party. And we read of this in the Old Testament in Exodus 24, where Moses sheds the blood of an animal to communicate the covenant between Israel and God. But unlike the old covenant that was made with animal blood, here Jesus enacts a new and a better covenant with his own blood. Jesus gives the new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah 31, where God would forgive the sins of his people, where his people would truly know him as their God from the least of them to the greatest, where they would have his teaching inscribed on their hearts and where they would be given the Spirit, and be able to come directly into his presence. And so Jesus, through his death, will bring his people into the new covenant with God by the shedding of his blood on the cross. And through his blood being poured out for me and for you, in this we rejoice because we are now the new covenant people of God, built on better promises than the old. We have God with us. So God gives us the Lord's Supper, and in this we're reminded of the new covenant blessings we've been given. But we are also reminded of Christ's inevitable return, the return of Jesus. And so though Jesus is about to be betrayed, though he's about to die by one of his closest disciples, by his betrayal, he doesn't leave them without a word of hope here. He says, truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus assures his disciples here that though these terrible things are about to happen to him, he will see them again. He will feast with them. He will drink with them again in the kingdom of God. And in these words from Jesus, we think of the promises given in Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, where a very similar promise is already made by God to us in the end. In this text, we read that the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine, and on this mountain, on this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. And when he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. So where this meal helps us to remember what Christ has done for us, 
it also is a foreshadowing of the coming meal. The coming meal that we will one day have with Jesus in glory, the resurrected Christ. And when we have that meal filled with fine meat and wine, we're told every wrong at that point will be made right. Every tear that we've ever shed wiped away and death swallowed up once and for all. We will be with Jesus. And so these are the words of hope that Jesus leaves his disciples before his betrayal. And as they prepare to leave to the garden, where he will be handed over for our sins, they sing a psalm, most likely a halal psalm, Psalm 118, which spoke of the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus will be rejected for us. And in the Lord's Supper, we remember all the benefits that are ours because of him. We remember these powerful symbols charged with meaning and purpose, and we allow it to sweep over us and conform us more to our hope in Jesus Christ alone. We remember his atoning work, that he satisfies his new covenant and his inevitable return. We remember Christ. So let us appreciate here this morning as we partake this meal and everything that it symbolizes for us.